is oh, everybody's back from their vacation, more or less. At least I know I am. And um, I suppose we should... Um, L is really a time for introspection, for um, trying to uh, self-examination. And the truth of the matter is, it's a very uncomfortable time of the year for many people if you want to take it seriously. Most people like to avoid it. As such, maybe we'll avoid it. But we'll mention a couple of things towards the end that perhaps we can do. But I think before we go into the idea of what, you know, what the L season is supposed to be all about, we have to somewhat take a little care in terms of what, you know, when we talk about Tauchacha, um, rebuking people or trying to make them better, we have to tread very cautiously on this area. We briefly mentioned it last time when we were talking about it, in terms of um, before the season final, I guess. We're talking about Tishabov in terms of uh, the lack of rebuke that Jews are punished for. And on the other hand, there are two sides of the coin that have to always be balanced, not to overdo it, not to underdo it. And it's really a very difficult area. We, we do know that it's very important for a person to be to, to have an ear for rebuke. It's a very, very important part. As a matter of fact, Rebbeinu Yonah in Shari Tshuva brings down the following point. He says, and he, and he proves it from a, halachic, um, from a halachic lesson in the Gemara above the comment. The Gemara says that we know that when you injure a person, you have to pay damages. So nowadays, you know, you could be awarded $26 million for whatever it is. In the olden days, you know, you didn't have insurance. So if you don't have insurance, you know, it's totally ridiculous to come up with uh, these kind of awards. So they had to work out a system of how to make equitable uh, payments. Of course, you could never really replace a person's body part and organ. But nevertheless, there had to be some sort of a price tag attached. So they basically worked out the following system. And we're going to get to this a little bit later as well. The basic laws of damages between when one human being damages another human being was they made a calculation based on five different aspects of the damage for example if someone blinds another individual so you cause them pain you cause them anguish and suffering embarrassment and you damage them so what they did was the following to estimate the cost of damages they had a very good system in those days which nowadays of course we don't have which is that people had price tags on them. Slaves, in other words. <coughs> a blind slave and a slave with two eyes obviously had a different price tag. So in terms of what is the value of an eye, was easy to estimate. It was the difference between a blind and a non-blind person. Now that we don't work with this. So that was one thing which they added on the tally. <coughs> that was called nezek, or damage. In addition to that, they had to estimate the pain and for that, there was an easy system as well, which was that, um, you know, nowadays, we, again, we have insurance. You go to the doctor, you go to the hospital, you give them your Blue Cross card, and you go into surgery. Those days, there was no such thing as a Blue Cross. So what did you do? If a guy, let's say, had to have an eye removed because it was uh, damaged or sick, so you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, listen, you have a choice. I'll either knock it out, or if you want to go under, an anesthesia, under anesthesia, it'll cost you this and this price. Are you willing to pay that difference? So there's a certain amount that people are willing to, to suffer or to pay the, accordingly, depending on what the price was. 
So they're able to make that estimation as well. So that was called the value of the pain. Then there was an area known as embarrassment, which we'll get to a little bit later on since that's part of what we want to discuss. A person who's minus an eye suffers embarrassment. So that was also added to the final um, estimation. Then, of course, there's unemployment because the person, you know, is now not qualified to do what he was perhaps able to do otherwise. So, he, so there was a way of making estimation for unemployment as well, compensation. And then, of course, there's medical reimbursement. Those were the major areas that were added together to come up with the sum. The Gemara points out the, an interesting thing. Why did I tell you all this? The Gemara says that if you knock out a person's eye, in terms of damage, there's a way of estimating the value of an eye. Let's say you make a person deaf. So the Gemara says you have to pay for the equivalent of the whole person, whatever that price tag is. But you don't pay for the limb, you pay for the actual person himself. Says Rabbein Yonah that there's an interesting moral lesson to be derived from this. The the Gemara, uh, rather, the uh, Pasuk in Mishlei says, Sonei tochochos yomus. He who hates rebuke, who doesn't want to listen, will die. Says Rebbein Yonah, what does that mean? Because the ear is our only means of really hearing the word of God. Our only way of self-improvement. Because why are we here? Why do we have a body? We have a body because we have a mission in life. And we have organs and we have everything else. In it, and it has to function. If a person is minus an eye or minus an arm or minus something else, he can't fulfill his mission in life, you know, the way he should. Obviously, it's inestimable. However, we do have to sometimes come up with a price tag, you know, for want of any other system. So we have to attach a price tag to each of our limbs and each of our organs. Your eye is worth this, your arm is worth that, whatever the case may be. But there is one organ that a human being has that, 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 that takes away his whole essence in terms of his ability to do Avodah Hashem, to do divine service, and that's the ear. If a person is, is incapable of hearing rebuke, or is incapable of hearing something that will make him better, you have missed out on what it means to be a human being. You're an animal. Therefore, says Rebbein Yonah, we can see from this Gemara a very important lesson. That when it comes to morality, and when it comes to religion, and when it comes to uh, Torah, the ear is the most important organ. If you lack the ear, you lack everything. And some people, even if they have ears, they're incapable of hearing criticism. People that are incapable of hearing criticism, says Rabbein Yonah, Sonei Tauchochos Yomus. A person that hates rebuke is a dead person. You have no way of bettering yourself. Ozan Shamas Tauchachas Musr. It's another Pasuk in Mishlei. An ear that hears the Musr, Tauchocha, rebuke of Musr, that's a person that will eventually dwell among the wise people. That's what the Pasuk in Mishlei says. The only real way of bettering yourself is if you are willing to listen. And, you know, I hear this from Eddie all the time. He's, one of the things that he always tells me, he can't understand all these people. I've mentioned, no naming names, don't worry about it. But in general, the people out there, you tell them and you invite them and this, and they don't hear. It falls on their fears. Why is the people can't, they just don't want to hear. And they're, and they're missing. A person that's willing to listen and willing to, you know, want to have some self-improvement and willing to listen to some sort of a criticism has a shot at improving himself and becoming a different person. But a person that just like turns it off, that's the person that will never improve it, and he's lacking. He's lacking a great deal of life. So the first lesson that we have to have is the importance of, of, um, 
of the willingness to listen in order to improve ourselves. I think this is really a prerequisite to Rosh Hashanah. And in fact, it should be a major theme of El would be a development of an ear. To develop a willingness to hear, to listen, to, to you know, to search. This willingness to search and this willingness to improve is probably the crucial thing that a person has to have to start with. If you lack the ear, you lack everything. If you have the ear, you have everything. We once mentioned this, let's say it again over here. And really this brings us to the other side of the coin. Which is that although a person has to have to develop an ear for rebuke, the person that's doing the rebuke has to be very careful because he's treading on dangerous territory. And proof of that is, of course, which we briefly once mentioned before, but now I'd like to elaborate a little further on it, is the very first thing we're, we're right now going through the whole Sefer Devarim. The Sefer Devarim was basically the, um, the rebukes, the tochochos, that Moshe Rabbeinu gave to the Bnei Yisrael. Moshe Rabbeinu went through their whole history and he used it in order to be able to tell them, Jewish people, I'm leaving you. This is where you, there's room for self-improvement. This is what you, where you've gone wrong. This is what has to be still corrected. And that's what really what the whole what the whole Sefer Devarim is all about. And it's introduced with the Pesach that says, Eila HaDvarim Asher Moshe, on top of the page, I'll call Yisrael to Eber Ayardain, that's the very first Pasuk in Devarim, which literally translates the following. These are the things that Moses spoke to all Israel on the eastern side of the Jordan, in the desert, on the plain against the Red Sea, between Poran, Tokmah, Lovon, Chatseros, and Dizov. What is the purpose of all of these locations? So right away, Rashi comments over here, as well as all the Midrashim, and they say the following that Moshe was telling them rebuke and each of these places was a hint at one of the places where the Jews sinned they sinned with the spies they sinned with the mon when they when they didn't trust God with that they sinned with the eagle each of these places were places where Moshe Rabbeinu you know we're all familiar with the with the uh, Joker's convention joke you know how once you already know all the jokes so you could already number them so you sing by the Joker's convention the guy says 24 and everybody laughs 36 and we all know the punchline in that story where the guy gets up and he tries saying it and uh, nobody's laughing. He says, why not? He says, what's the way you tell the joke? You know? yeah. In essence, that's really what Moshe was doing over here. Moshe was saying, you recall Chatzeros, yeah. You recall Di Zahav, the gold, remember the gold, the golden calf? But Moses was the one giving the rebuke. But even Moshe was very careful that he treaded very carefully and he did, as Rashi says, that he, he, he didn't want to give it to them full force. So what did he do? He reprimanded them in a hint-like fashion. The He kept it more or less covered. The He only did it in a hint-like fashion. In deference to the honor of the Jewish people. But now let's understand what we're talking about over here. Because there's a, there's a, there's a very interesting Yalkut Shemoni right below that. Dover Acher. The, the Yalka Shemoni says the following. It says, These are the words that Moshe spoke to all the Jewish people. So the Medrash is bothered by the additional words of El Kol Yisrael, to all the Jews. What does it mean that he gathered them all together, he spoke to each and every one? What does it mean that he spoke to all the Jews? I mean, does it mean that he actually gathered all of them? And what does that mean? So he says this following. 
that all the Jews of that generation were willing to listen to rebuke. What we discussed earlier about the importance of developing an ear for rebuke, they had it. All the Jews then were willing to listen. Kulam balei tachacha. They were all balei tachacha. They all were willing to hear. The yicholim laud tachachas. They were able to take it. They were able to take the rebuke that that Moshe Rabbeinu was going to give it out. You know, we all use the expression, "You can uh, dish it out, but you don't know how to take it." In those days, the Jews, every single one, was capable of not only dishing it out but taking it as well. So now, now we come across a very appalling uh, statement from the greatest of the Tanoim in the generation of Rabbi Kiva. Omar Rav Tarfin said the following statement. Ho'avoda. Havoda is an expression which means the divine service. It's like saying by God. Ho'avoda, by God. I wonder if there's a person alive today, in his generation, that has the capacity to give proper rebuke, the way Moshe was. Do we have a Moshe Rabbeinu that knows how to give rebuke? He says, I wonder if there's anybody that's like that. Omar Rabbi ben Azariah. Rabbi ben Azariah was one of the greatest of the sages of his generation, says, by, by the life of God, is there anybody alive today that knows how to take it, that could stand the rebuke? Who has the ear to listen to rebuke? Who has that? Omar Rabbi Kiva. Then Rabbi Kiva says the following, I swear, does anybody know the proper methods of rebuke? Who nowadays knows how to go about rebuking people? So we're talking about a generation of Rabbi Kiva, Rabbi Tafner, Rabbi ben Azaya, and they were saying that in their days, it's a wonder if anybody knows how to give it, and if anybody knows how to take it. Omar Rabbi ben Nuri. Rabbi Yochum ben Nuri says, Made on your life, However, I testify, I call to testify upon myself, heaven and earth, there was more than five times the skanter al yidei al yodai akiva of Meir Rabbi Gamliel. I got Rabbi Kiva in trouble in class. In other words, in front of Rabbi Gamliel, who was the prince, and anybody knows some of the stories of Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Gamliel was a pretty tough person. And he says, I got Rabbi Kiva in trouble five times in front of Rabbi Gamliel. If they show you see Kaival along, or you see the counter, and I, I really like raised them on. I, you know, I dug it into him. And he says like this, why did I do it? Because I know him so well, that each time I got him in trouble, he loved me all the more for it. As it says in the Pesach, don't give rebuke to a person who's a scoffer, to a person that, that, that that's going to not be able to take it. Because that will just promote hatred. You provoke hatred when you give rebuke to the wrong person. However, a person who's already wise, he's the person that can take the rebuke, and he's the person that you should rebuke. The yell that one that will cause him to love you all the more. He says that's what Rabbi Kiva. Rabbi Kiva was a chacham. When I caused him to get in trouble, he loved me for it all the more. So we see that we're dealing in a generation where, you now what can we say nowadays? Who has the ear who's really willing to listen to rebuke? Well, by the rock, Moshe lost his temper, and as such, he was punished for it which is, again, part of the same idea, the same lesson, that rebuke has to be very measured. Even a generation like the Jewish people that were willing to listen, you still have to tread very carefully even with people like them. You lose your temper, that's no good. You know, in fact, I think it was, which of the Gdol, maybe it was Revelio Lapian, 
And this is, by the way, a lesson that all parents should have with their kids. Whenever they were angry with their kid, that's not when they hit them. They would, you know, the kid did something really terrible, and they got angry at them, they would let him go. A couple of hours later, or even a couple of days later, call them over, and then they'd give them the patch for it. Once they don't feel the anger anymore, now I know I'm doing it because the kid did something wrong. We do just the opposite. Until the kid gets on your nerves to the point where you're ready to rip out your hair, I'm going to kill you. you know, that's the, and that's when you finally hit the kid. That's wrong. It should be just the opposite. When you feel like that, that's when you're not supposed to hit him. It's only when you're cool. But, you know, the, the fact is that that is the wrong time to punish the child because you're lashing out at the child. You have to punish him when you punish. Forget it. Punishing them doesn't necessarily have to be physical. You could punish them in many, many ways. There's other ways of punishing them. Whatever the case may be, stand in the corner. But you have to do it at a time when you're not doing it because you want to vent or you want to let off a little bit of steam. Because what we really have is two very crucial lessons. One, that the each individual has to develop a capacity to hear rebuke. But the other thing is that even when you're dealing with a generation like the Jewish people and you're dealing with someone like Moshe, even that generation that had the ear for rebuke, as the Alta Shimoni says, that although Rabbi Kiva was saying in his generation nobody has it, but the Jews call Yisrael, they all had it. Nevertheless, they couldn't bear the brunt of a frontal assault. They still had to have Moshe tread very cautiously in how he gave the rebuke. Even people that are capable of listening to it, you have to do it very carefully. That's why, that's the why, other important why thing. Why is there nobody that's capable of generation? Or in our generation. And, 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 right. Why aren't we? I'm not sure. I don't know. I, I, mean, I know that we, we mentioned this last time also, that as a result of this psaq, the chazan, as a result of this concept, the Chazanish came up with the Psach that no one has the din of an Apikoros nowadays for that reason. Because since there's no one to really give proper rebuke, so no one can be branded an Apikoros fully because of that reason. Because there's no one that, that's capable of you know giving him the opportunity to get back. I suppose because if you have the right people, you can inspire most people to do the right thing. And maybe we just lack it. I don't know what it, what it takes. But it's sort of like, don't waste your time with people who aren't too smart. That, that is definitely a lesson. Don't waste your time with people that are not interested in hearing. You have to find the right time when they're willing to listen. And even then... So that's what Rabbi Yonah said. That's why you've got Rabbi Noya Kleinberg and people like that. Waste their time But a person who's a soulmate to Chochos, a person that hates any kind of criticism, he almost, he's going to die. That's it. That's it. But the point still is that you have to be very careful in how you tread in terms of, of, of dealing with people. As a result of this, we can now understand a little bit, and I think this is one of the crucial lessons that we now have to learn as well, which is that this idea of being careful of what, what Rashi calls covered Kvod Shal Yisrael, or, or what we call Kavod Habrius, is something which, Rebbe Shmulevitz points this out, is something that we universally find in many areas of the um, of the history of the Torah, and uh, where God was careful for the honor and the respect of people that were not even necessarily on such a high level. For example, let's take a couple of examples. The story of Bilam. Bilam we know was a person that wanted to curse the Jewish people. He wanted to uproot the Jewish people, and he gave advice that caused that caused the Jews to sin. 
and he brought great calamities on the Jewish people. He went against the will of God, and he got rebuke. Who gave him rebuke? His donkey. He was riding his donkey one day, and all of a sudden the donkey started to open his mouth, and it says Bill didn't know what to answer. He didn't know what to answer. Rashi points out what happened to the donkey. The donkey died. Right after he gave Bilaam rebuke, and Bilaam was embarrassed by the donkey, in order that people shouldn't go around saying, hey, that's the donkey that showed up Bilaam, the donkey died. Because Hashem wanted to protect Kvodo Shalbrios. In other words, a human being suffers at the hand of an animal. The animal shows up the human being. We don't want the animal around to perpetually embarrass this person. Now, who are we speaking about here? We're speaking about a Bilaam. We're speaking about a Bilaam that deserves it. And we're speaking about that if the donkey would remain alive, this was a donkey that a miracle occurred. It says in Pirkei Ovis, whatever it means exactly, but it says that this donkey was already prepared from the six days of creation. It doesn't necessarily literally mean that the donkey was around for 3,000 years before that. What it means, though, is that certain changes in the course of nature were set aside from the beginning of time. But we're talking about a major miracle and a major Kiddush Hashem. The people would say, hey, that's a donkey that, that, that spoke. That's a major Kiddush Hashem. Nevertheless, in order to protect the honor of even Abdullah, God caused that donkey to die. We see that even these kind of individuals, or another example that we, we've mentioned other times, I don't want to go through the whole story, but, it, but the Gomorrah says, and I have it on the bottom, Tanya, Omer Abba See how powerful are the, is the power of embarrassment. Sharei Sayeha Kodesh Baruch Hu Bar Kamtza, Hashem helped Bar Kamtza V'hirchim Es he destroyed his house, the Sarapas Hecholo, and he burnt his temple. We know the story of the Kamsa Bar Kamsa, but basically Bar Kamsa was an individual who, who was a, who was what we call a Moser, or a Rodek, a person that, that, that was trying to bring the Romans in to get even with the Jewish people, whether he was justified or not justified. The point is God allowed him to be successful in his endeavor because of the embarrassment that he suffered. That means that the embarrassment of even an individual on the level of a Bar Kamsa was likewise protected by God so much so that he was willing to allow the base of English to be destroyed, which seems to be a remarkable thing, to allow the base of English to be destroyed. I mean, I don't know if I once mentioned this um, this historical thing. We know that probably the um, one of the greatest periods in Jewish scholarship in the Middle Ages, of course, was Rashi and the Balei Tosmos. Everybody heard of Rashi. Almost everybody heard of Tosas. Who was Rashi? Who was Tosas? Rashi was a Jew that lived in, in France, German region in the 11th century. And Tosas were his grandchildren. Basically, all the Balei Tosas were the grandchildren of Rashi. That means Rashi was the beginning of a dynasty. And there was a very powerful dynasty of Jewish scholarship that extended for the next 100, 150 years in France and Germany and there was, uh, we have all the Tysus, a lot of them, I mean, they, they, they were very prolific. They produced really, uh, I guess uh, the only word to use is seminal works in, in Torah scholarship. What happened to them? All of a sudden, it, they were gone. Around uh, the mid-1200s, they were gone. Or it was around 1300. What happened to them? In a whole school, you have to understand how, how Tosis worked. The way Tosis worked was that... Um, Rashi, of course, was an expert in every part of the Torah. I mean, every Pasuk, in Chumash, in Tanakh, in Gemara, there's always Rashi for it. What they did with Tosis was they, they made each individual 
who was in the Tosa school, you know, imagine a yeshiva where you have two, three hundred scholars, and each one had to be an expert in all of the Torah. You have to know the entire Talmud by heart. In addition to that, he had to specialize in one tractate, the one Masechta. And that was his expertise, and that's where he would write his pirush. He would write his exposition, he would write his uh, commentary. And our Tosis that we have nowadays is really a compilation of the expertise of all these different individuals. So you're talking about a remarkable school, and it's all with the descendants of Rashi. Why did they disappear? So there was... um, this is brought down in one of the letters of the Rishonim. In the great Maimonidean controversy, when the Rambam came up with his writings, so he met a great deal of opposition from the school of the, from the people in the Bali Tosus. As a result, there were a couple of people that, that mastered to the Dominican friars. In other words, they, they, they said that the Rambam has heretical works. And they gathered together the Rambam's works and they burnt them in the great square in Paris. Forty days later, a new edict came out where they gathered up 24 wagon loads of Talmuds. Again, we're talking about before printing. Each of these were manuscripts. So you're talking about 24 huge wagon loads of Talmuds. That's probably every single Talmud that they were able to round up in France. And they burnt it over there. And they made an edict that no one is allowed to study Talmud anymore. As a result, the majority of the scholars and of the rabbis felt they could no longer live in France and Germany because it's not in the conducive environment to Torah scholarship, so they left. So one of the Rishonim writes that this was given as a punishment because of what they did to the Rambam, that God saw fit to burn the Talmud and to burn and to close up this entire school and to bring this golden era of Jewish scholarship to an end in defense of the Rambam's honor. So that's what it is that God will sometimes allow good things to be destroyed to protect the honor or the slight of an individual who was slighted at the wrong time in the wrong manner. That's Bar Kamsa. Bar Kamsa was a terrible person, as we see. But nevertheless, he suffered tremendous embarrassment. God said, you know what? I'm giving you carte blanche, even though it's going to lead to the destruction of the temple. So we see that God protects the honor and the respect of even evildoers. Um, another instance, another example along these lines. It says that in the story of Korach, so Korach and 250 people came and mutinied against Moshe. They rebelled against Moshe's authority. What happens? Moshe, Korach got swallowed in the earth, and the 250 people that joined him had their uh, fire pans, a fire came out of it, and burnt them up. Our, then Hashem gives a command and says, you know what? Tell Elozer, the son of Aaron, to go and gather those uh, fire pans in order that it should be a mem- an everlasting memorial to the Jewish people that you should not go against the authority of Moshe and Aaron and because part of it was they were against the kahuna they were against the priesthood, against Aaron and this will be an everlasting memorial so Chazal comment why was it a Lazar that was commanded to do this? Why not Aaron himself? This is Lavdo Derech Eretz teach us a little bit of Derech Eretz that these people that they were that they were fighting against Aaron for Aaron to come and to pick up their pieces and to put up as an everlasting memorial, it's like a way of twisting the knife in a little deeper. Says Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, yes, they were punished, and they were punished forever with an everlasting memorial, and the fire came out and burnt them, and they did a terrible sin. But even when God gives punishment, it has to be weighed to the to the letter. 
to the T. They deserve this much, they don't deserve more. They don't deserve having their faces ground into the dirt, so to speak, by having Aaron come and be the one to set up the altar and to set up this, uh, these fire pans. That much they do deserve. Even sinners deserve their due respect. And this is a very important lesson that a person has to realize that when we deal with, with other people, when we deal with uh, even sinners, there, there are bounds that you don't go beyond. Omar Rab Meir, on the right side over there, it refers to a person that was killed. It says that a person that, that blasphemes God and serves an, an idolater suffers the worst um, form of death, which is death by stoning. That's considered the most severe form of death. What they then do is they take the dead body and they hang it up on a tree. But they do it before Shkia and then they immediately let it down. And that's where the Isser comes, where it says, Los Solon of Los don't allow the, the dead body to remain on the tree overnight because that's a blasphemy to God and God feels bad when a human being has to be hung. So we're talking about an idolater. From this, by the way, is learned the lesson. Well, we'll see, um, okay, we'll see by the end. So Omar Rameir, Rameir says the following, based on this. When a person suffers embarrassment or is in pain, what does the Shechina say? It's as if God himself is saying, I have a headache. It's a play on the word from Kil Asalokim. It's as if God feels like, you know, I'm suffering. My head hurts, my stomach hurts. Kilani Mizroi. Take a look how much God feels bad at the blood of the wicked people that has to be shed. Certainly God feels bad when righteous people have to suffer um, either embarrassment or any other kind of suffering. Then it just goes on on the side. This is really where the source is learned out that you have to bury people the day that they die. It's based on this possible because it says that you're not supposed to let the person that was killed as a death penalty stay overnight because that's an embarrassment to the person and to God that he should be allowed and not to be buried. To this, the Mishnah says the following. Helino Luchvoda, but if the reason why you keep him overnight was for his own honor, Oro to bring him a, a, a casket, or, or the things that he needs, the that's okay. In other words, this is really... In a nutshell, the entire um, uh, Jewish procedure in terms of burial. We try to burial as quickly as possible. If you allow the dead person to remain overnight for no reason, that's an embarrassment to the person and you violated a law in the Torah, you violated the negative command. However, the reason why you're doing it is because of, you know, it's for the benefit of the dead person, for his respect, then obviously you're not violating the law. But that's, but that's it's learned out from the, from the case of the idolater who has killed this this very, uh, you know, uh, degraded form of death. But even him, we have to be careful in how we go about treating his dead body afterwards. And the whole lab, the whole Jewish method of burial is learned out from how we're supposed to deal with a person that was guilty of a death penalty. Unlike what you find even nowadays in Iraq and in these countries, when they used to kill people, they'd hang them up and they'd leave them over there rotting for for a couple of days in order, you know, when you hate someone, you just leave them over there. We, we didn't do it that way. What do you do, how do, does a person measure embarrassment? So the Gemara, so there's an interesting mission, and it relates an interesting story as well. 
So let's go through If someone punches his friend, no single seller, he has to give him a certain amount of money. Even more. Storo, that's if you slap him. So a slap is a uh, more embarrassing, it's more degrading. But you punch someone, that's the way you fight. But when you hit someone and you wound him with a slap, hey, you know, you're a nobody. So the Gemara measures it a little bit more. You have to give him a Zuz, double the amount, 200. If you give him a backhanded slap, it's different, right? You know, you give him a backhand, no single Arba Mezuz. You gotta give him 400 Zuz, which is a lot of money. That's double the amount that goes in the Ksuba. It, it's a lot of money. Then it goes into some of the other things that you pull his hair, if you spit at him, if you take off every Talisa Mimenu, if you like unclothe him, you rip his clothes off. Then it gives another interesting one. Pora Rosha Isha Bashok. If you uncover a woman's hair in public, can you imagine that? And she's wearing her shaitel, and you pull off the shaitel, that's pretty embarrassing, you know? No single Arba Meazuz. That's considered the worst form of embarrassment, and this is the maximum sum that's that's recounted over here. Four hundred zuz. Around the other, what, the end, yeah, like you know, you start schlepping your make, you know, you start doing that. It's it's pretty embarrassing. In any case, so you uncover a woman's hair in public, it's four hundred zuz. So then the then the Mishnah makes the following stipulation. This is only a maximum amount. In other words, a person who's a respectable individual, and you do this to them. So then you pay the maximum. However, people that are of a lower social strata, for them, you pay less. And you have to measure them based on where where they stand. So the Gemara says the following. It's a very interesting thing here. Omer So first of all, Rabbi Kiva says, no, I disagree with that. Afilu anim shabi Yisrael. Even the poorest Jew, ro'nosam, we look at them, kilu heim b'nei chorin, we look at them as if they were multi-millionaires, that real estate went bad, sheyordu b'nechseim, the properties went down. And you know how it is. You take a rich person who loses it all in the stock market or who loses it all because the real estate goes, he's still a Bakovitic dimension. And you can't treat him like a Gornish. He's still a Bakovitic dimension. Says Rabbi Kiva, every Jew is that. Even the poorest Jew is really an aristocrat who lost it all. But we have to look at them as if they are aristocracy. Why? Shehem bin Avram Yitzhak Because they're the descendants of Avram Yitzhak So what could be better than that? Now the mission, the mission very seldom goes into stories because the mission is really quite. Gomorrah goes into stories very often. The mission seldom goes into stories because it's very brief in terms of legalisms. Here, this sees fit to go into a story. It happened one time. He goes over to a woman and he pulls off her tichel, or he pulls off her shaitel. Boss with me, Rabbi Kiva. He comes to Rabbi Kiva. The chayvo litin and Rabbi Kiva judged according to his ruling and said, hey, you got to pay the maximum amount, 400 zuz, for uncovering her hair in public. So this guy was a real smart cookie. I mean, this guy had street smarts. Listen to what the guy did. Allah. So he said to Rebekah, Rabbi, my Rabbi, Henry's man, yeah, I can't pay it all now. Give me a little time so that I can come up with the money. It's a lot of money you're charging me, 400 zuz. The Nosan Law's man, he said, okay, fine, you have you know, a few days or a month, whatever the case may be, to pay it off. So what did the guy do? See, well, he did a smart thing. He takes a, he goes to the store, and he buys in the container a um, 10 cents worth of oil, cream, whatever the case is. He then waits for her to come to the door of her um, 
of her courtyard, and he smashes right in front of her this container of oil. Let's say it inside first. So he says like this. Shomra, he waits. Omedus al Pesach he waits till he sees her standing by the entrance to her chotzer, to her courtyard. The shovar sakav and he breaks a small pitcher of oil in front of her. Uboki isar shemen, and it contains within a few cents worth of oil. Shampoo, whatever the case is. What did she do? Gilsos rosha. She was really something else. She uncovers her hair, and she takes her tichel, and uses it as a sponge. And she starts absorbing and soaking up the oil that's dripping down. She starts putting it under her to get a little bit of a free shampoo. She gets a little free shampoo over here for 25 cents. This guy had two witnesses watching this that could see this. He goes over to Rebekah and says, Omerlo, Rabbi, my Rebbe, to this woman you're going to obligate me. 400 zoos because I uncovered her hair when she's willing to do it to get a little free shampoo in public? I mean, what kind of person are we dealing with over here? For a few cents, you know, she does it for free. I'm going to pay her 400 zoos for embarrassment? He said nothing. You still got to pay it. And then he just says the following. He says, you know, a person is now allowed to wound himself, but if he does, he doesn't have to pay himself. The point is, even this kind of an individual who is the most crassest kind of individuals, a real crude person. Nevertheless, you got to pay the maximum amount of coin to Rabbi Kiva. She's an aristocrat. She's an aristocrat that lost it a little bit. She lost a lot more. Probably because it's the kind of woman she was. Maybe he realized it. But, you know, so in any case, it's the same lesson that you really have from all of this. That you see that even people that are in lower social strata, you have to be very careful from even when Moshe Rabbeinu rebukes them, you have to be very careful. Two lessons, basically, we have over here. One, you have to develop an ear to listen to rebuke. Number two, when you criticize, you have to do it in very measured ways because you have to treat someone with tremendous respect, as we see from all of these um, stories. No, I don't think so. I don't think people follow it at all. However, when, when people hear these things, it makes them a little bit more aware. Again, whenever we're talking about in El, about doing true, no one's expecting you that you're going to overnight become the tzaddik. But there are a few things that a person could try to do. By the end, I'm going to give a couple of things that a person can be careful for, things that are important. You should be open to reading, uh, I don't know, maybe a year, maybe more ago, where some of uh, Gatmar's, some rabbi... Oh! Those people are. You're right. A hundred percent. Those are people. Because they don't. They don't come to our Wednesday night class in the show. So you shouldn't be openly critical of other people. Is that what you're? Is that really what it's saying? So like the whole Rabbi Greenberg episode, the whole. Well, Rabbi Greenberg episode's a little bit different because they have their committee over there meeting in private. And they have to decide what to do, which they have a right to do. The fact that we're living in an era of journalism where you have leaks to the press and it comes out in the open is something which is unfortunate and can't be helped. But it, well, that's a long story. We'll talk about it after. That's a whole other show. We already discussed the centrist thing last time. You missed the whole centrist thing. 
What does this got to do with measuring embarrassment? But that's embarrassment. No, I'm saying to what extent? No, no, I'm just giving you a different example as to what extent you have to do. So do you, don't you, do you criticize, don't you? So even these kind of people. They don't know what to do. What we're speaking about is, is the concept of covered ha'adam or covered habrias. Honor and respect due to a human being because you're a human being. Even a bilam from his donkey. You know, these are all examples of how you have to treat a person with, with great caution. And that's why when you rebuke someone, you have to rebuke them with great care. Let's just take one more story before I'll get into another thing that I wanted to get into a little bit, which is the following. And this is the Raman basis of Sakhalach on this. Omar of Yeshua, this is a. I came across this while I was doing my Mishnahis for the yard site. I have a yard site today. I have the yard site today. So I came across a number of interesting Mishnahis. That's where some of this came from. Omar of Yeshua. In other words, I have a tradition from Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai who heard it from his Rebbe, who heard it from his Rebbe, all the way back to Sinai. When Eliyonovi comes before Mashiach, he's not going to come to purify or to make Tomei, to bring people near or to make him far away, except for one thing. Only to push away a yichus of a person that doesn't deserve it, that strong by strong arm tactics brought himself in. There was a person that wasn't a Kohen, a guy or whatever it is, and he wants to become a Kohen, and he forces his way in, and he doesn't belong there. That's who Eliyahu is eventually going to say, this person doesn't deserve it. And likewise, people that were pushed aside by force are going to be like are going to be brought back by Eliyahu. He gives an example. Mishpachas based treifa voice of Eivor Yarden. There was a family of based treifa on the other side of the Jordan. Verichako Ben Sion and Ben Sion was a real tough uh, guy, uh, one of these types. Bizroa and, and he pushed them aside from from having legitimate yichus. Voda There was another family there. The care of Ben Sion Bizroa and Ben Sion. This guy brought them into the yichus. Says Kegon only these kind of instances will Eliyahu do it. The Rambam right away points out over here a very interesting point. Take a look how careful Chazal were when they wrote this Mishnah. There was a family by the name of Beis Trefa living on the other side of the Jordan that they had Yichus but they were forcibly pushed aside. Eliyahu is going to bring them back. There, by the way, there was another family over there that was not a Yichus and they forcibly became pedigree. And it doesn't say their name. See how far Chazal were that even on this kind of an individual family, that they didn't want to cause them embarrassment, and they didn't want to mention them for and record them for eternity. It was another, and they had good reason to, because Eliyahu is going to come and he's going to he's going to push them back and say they don't have yichus. But when it came to this, you know, the reason it was you reminded me of a story that happened a while back that that in one of these arguments among these things, people came up with this settle. Uh, that the great-grandparents of someone was, was, was illegitimate or something like that. Chazal were so careful that even this kind of a family that was that, that didn't deserve the yichus, and they're always going to push them away. They didn't want to mention their names because they, they ran away from any type of Lashon Har possible. You ask me, do people keep this or not? What's the point? The point is that if a person learns Mishnahis carefully, you get a lot of messages, and when you learn Torah, it improves your character simply because you learn enough things, you start becoming better from it. And 
Of course, you're not going to be like this. You'll still occasionally say the gossip. But, you know, you moved even one little nuance, one little iota. If you move up, you do a little self-improvement, that's also worth something. A lesson that could be learned from this. By the way, the Gemara, the mission ends off not like that. It ends off, Elianov is not even going to come for that. And the final conclusion is that Elianov is only going to come to, to bring peace to the world. Arguments is what he hates. The Yichus, all this Yichus business, that's nothing. That's not important. If a person, as the Rambam says, that if a person wants to be part of Torah, Torah is his Yichus. And the Rambam says, Torah is his Av. You know, there's an interesting letter that he wrote to uh, Rabbi Ovadio Hager. There's a certain Ger that wrote the letter or letter to the Rambam. And one of the questions he asked was, in benching, could he recite... Um, you know, could he include himself among the Jewish people and say, the land that you gave my forefathers, well, he doesn't have any forefathers. Likewise, when he brings Bikurim, does he say the Mikra Bikurim, does he read the that whole thing? Because it says over there, you took us out of Egypt, you gave it to my forefathers. Do you read it? So there's an Achleikis in the Gemara, whether a Ger, although he's obligated to bring the Bikurim, does he make the recitation that Bikurim entails? Because he can't say the whole thing. The Ramam says, no, you do say it. Because you're part of us and you're a member of the Jewish people, you are a member in good standing, and you have the same yichus as us. And he ends off a very interesting way. And he says, Don't let your yichus be small in your eyes. Because if we say that our yichus is Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, your yichus is God. Because God is considered your father since you, on your own, brought yourself close to him. He is your father. The Ramam says a very similar thing over here at the end of Idiots in this particular Mishnah. Namely, that a person that wants to follow the Torah, yes, he. He, he got his way into Yichus through corruption. But now if he's willing to follow the Torah, Torah now is his father, that's his Yichus. El Yenovi is not going to come to push this kind of an individual aside. His purpose is going to come to stop all the disagreements, all the fights, all the arguments, all the quarreling that the Jews have. That's what El Yenovi is going to come. The Heshev Leibovus Albonim Leibonim Alavosim to bring fathers and children back together again, to bring families together, to bring the Jewish people together again. You know, we all question how is it possible for Mashiach to come? We have so much, you know, debate and fighting. I guess that's what we need Mashiach for. We really need Mashiach to come to bring us back together again. That's Elianovi's function. Because the main enemy of the Jewish people is the quarreling and the bickering and the fighting between man and fellow man, between one faction and another faction, one segment and another segment. That's the greatest enemy, and that's what Elianovi's coming from. That's what the mission ends off with. Now I'd like to do... Um, let's see, I don't know if we're going to... It's an interesting story. I think we should do it. How many of people are familiar with the story of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? What happened was, in the time, uh, let's 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 do a little bit of Jewish history over here, a little bit of Novi, a little bit of Nach. You could read on your own when we get to that part, but let's give a little bit of an introduction, just so people should know a little facts, some Jewish facts. It says it was in the third year of the reign of Yehoiakim, the king of Yehuda. That means before the temple was destroyed. At that point, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came on Jerusalem, besieged it, and conquered it. What did he do? He took away, he looted the temple, and he took away some of the vessels of the temple, and he took it to Babylon with him and placed it in his temple. At that point, since he was now in control of the Jewish people, at that point he did not destroy Jerusalem yet. This was like 15 years before the destruction of the temple. He says, you know what, I want the cream and the nobility of the Jewish people to come to Babylon. So he tells his 
chief officer the following, that he should bring in from the children of Israel, Yilodim Asher Einblem Kolmun, children royal uh, seed that, that have no blemishes upon them, not physical and not uh, intellectual or spiritual. The Tove Mar, they should be fair to look upon us. I want some handsome kids. Umaskilim Bukhochma. They should be skilled in all forms of wisdom. The Yode Das. They should know and be discerning and understanding. Umevine Mada. They should be knowledgeable in all forms of thought and sciences. Bashakhbim Lamo Bechalamelach. And they should have noble bearing. They should be able to stand in the palace of the king to be trained. In order that they should be trained all the wisdom of Babylon and of the vicinity. So what did he do? He took they took a bunch of youths, fifteen year old kids, adolescents, and they brought them up to Babylon. And they found amongst them the ones that were from the fairest, the most handsome, the most refined and educated, four of the individuals were Daniel, Hananya, Mishal, Nazaya. They were descendants of Chizkiyahamelah, of King Hezekiah, whatever. Chizkiyahamelah. They were his descendants, and they came there. The king said, I want him to go to school now to the Royal University for three years. And during those three years, I'm going. they're going to eat off the royal table. In other words, that they'll take a daily portion of whatever the king eats. He's going to set aside shrine, so to speak, and give them from his food. And the wine that he drinks, he's going to give them. In other words, going to be fed everything that the king is. In order that they should be able to, you know, really be educated and brought up in, in a cultured environment, they should be from the um, nobles of, of Babylon as well. So he brings these four Daniel, Hanani, Mishol, Vazaya. He then gives them Babylonian names. Daniel is called Belshazzar. He calls Hanani, Mishol, Vazaya. He calls them Shadrach, Meshach, and Avadnego. That's where they got it. These are These are Babylonian names. We have in Joseph's story the same thing. When Yosef came to the king, Paro gave him an Egyptian name. Because whenever you get a promotion, they give you a title. So this was their title. At this point, Daniel, we have to understand, was a child of 15, exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon, brought into this great palace, and he's going to be trained to be something big over here. He says, I don't want to eat the king's food. So he goes over to the chief officer in charge, and he says, I, it's trafe. I don't want to drink the king's wine, even though it's only rabbinically forbidden. And I don't want to eat from the king's food. Just give me vegetables and water. That's what he asked from the chief officer. So the chief officer says to him that uh, I'm, I'm afraid if I give you this, and after a while the king's going to see that you know, you know, the other ones are going to grow strong and handsome, and you're going to be on a water and vegetable diet. You won't even eat bread. Who knows what you're going to look up? He's going to have my head. Literally, he's going to have my head. Vegetarian. Yeah, vegetarian. So what does Daniel say? Daniel says, let's test it out. Let's make an experiment. Give me ten days. Give me ten days for me, Kanani Mishal Bazaya, that you'll just give us vegetables and water. And see what happens. So he tested it out for ten days, and he found after ten days that their demeanor and their countenance and their faces were so radiant, and more so than everybody else, he said, you know what? I see the diet is doing you good. A vegetarian diet is doing you real good. You can continue on it. So in any case, so they continued on this vegetable diet. They started teaching them all forms of wisdom. And they went to the greatest of the universities over there. At the end of three years, 
they were now, I guess, 18, 19, they were brought into an audience to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And he gives them uh, a test. Just like, you know, you want to get an examination and to get a diploma, right? He gives them an examination. That's what it says. He gave them an examination and he asked them in all forms of wisdom and knowledge and facets. He had everything all laid out for them. They passed with flying colors. 100%. He found them to be superior in wisdom and knowledge to all of his nobles and all of his advisors and all of his, um, whatever they call them, satraps and officers, etc., etc. As such, what did he do? He appointed them to be his personal advisors and his personal um, um, wise men. Okay. That was the end of that. So now they were all four of them were appointed to be the king's personal counselors. A couple of years later, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And the dream greatly troubled him. So he calls in all of his, you know, uh, magicians and wise men and everything else, and he tells them, I have a dream and it's really bothering me and I need an interpretation. So what do the wise men say? Tell us the dream, and we'll interpret it for you. But he was already, Nebuchadnezzar was a little smarter than that. He said, uh-uh, how do I know that your interpretation? Of course you can interpret for me. You tell me the dream, and then tell me the interpretation. That way I know that you really know what you're talking about. So they said this, in all of history, in ancient history, this was never done. Kings would tell their wise men and their magicians their dreams, and they would interpret it for them. At the end, I mean, this was never done. So Nebuchadnezzar had a terrible temper. And he said, I swear that if someone doesn't come and tell me my dream, all you guys are a bunch of phonies and fakes, and I've been paying for uh, the hard-earned taxes that I've been conquering and everything else for you guys to lead luxurious lives and you're all a bunch of phonies, I'm going to kill you all out, unless you do it. So they were in a quandary. Obviously, no one knows how to uh, figure out what dream he had. And before he's about to carry out his edict, Daniel finds out about it, and he prays with Hanayim Mishov Azariah to God, in order because he wanted to save his skin also, right? He was going to be affected. He was one of the wise men. So he says, you know what, I'm going to make an attempt. So he goes over to, to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, listen, there's someone wiser than all of us, and that's God, and God knows all dreams. Tell me, and I'll, I mean, give me a chance, and I'll do it. Daniel was, was a Navi, where he had Ruach HaKodesh, and as such, he was able to discern the dream of the Nebuchadnezzar. <coughs> he tells it to him. He tells him the interpretation. The whole walk thing, and this, this is already one of the famous prophecies of Daniel. And um, he tells him the whole thing. As such, Nebuchadnezzar um, is so greatly impressed that he says, the God of this person is the greatest of gods. You are a divine being. And he bows down to Daniel. He says, you're the greatest of all. He now appoints him as the chief counselor over all the provinces Hanani Mishol Bazar likewise were given promotions and now they were in charge of the greatest parts of the empire this is the background to the story Okay, so we now have Daniel he has the ear of the king Daniel, Hanani Mishol Bazar are very strongly attached to their Judaism but at the same time they were educated and cultured in all forms of Babylonian culture and Daniel interpreted the dream correctly, above and beyond everybody else, and they passed examinations that no one else was able to pass. At that point, Nebuchadnezzar, who obviously was a megalomaniac, which most of these types of people are, he decides to do the following. He makes a giant statue. Now listen to what kind of statue he makes. He makes an image of gold 
that the height of it was 60 amos high, 60 cubits. What is a cubit? Well, your tzitzis is 18 inches, Jerry's is 22, mine is 24, based on what an amo is. That means a cubit is somewhere between 18 and 24 inches. He made an image 60 cubits high. So you're talking about somewhere between 90 and 120 feet high. And the width of it, the breadth of it, was 6 cubits. 18 feet wide. Made out of gold. I doubt if he used pure gold, he maybe overlaid it with gold, whatever the case is. But he had this huge statue erected. And he placed it in a plain, in a flat land. And he invited all the officers of the kingdom, of all of the empire, to come. And he said, when the trumpets blare... Everybody has to bow down to this statue and worship it. From this point on, you could basically read the rest of the story in here. At that point, they blared the trumpets, people bowed down. Along came some of the uh, some of the people that were envious of the Jews, and they spoke to Nebuchadnezzar and they said to him, O king who lives forever, you made a decree that uh, whenever they hear the sound of the horn and the bagpipe, etc., etc., all kinds of music, everybody has to fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever doesn't do it, there's a decree made that whoever doesn't is going to be cast in the fiery furnace. That was going to be the punishment. If someone doesn't pay homage to the statue, you're going to be cast into a fiery furnace. He said there are certain Jews who you appointed over the affairs of the empire by the name of Hananiah Mishol Vazaria, where Daniel is at this point is a very interesting question, but that the Gemara discusses. But for some reason they said that Hananiah, Mishol, Vazaria, these three individuals that you appointed as being the um, in charge of their certain provinces, disregard you. And when they hear it, they're, they're not bowing down. Nebuchadnezzar loses his temper immediately, and in his rage and fury he brings over Hananiah, Mishol, Vazaria, and he asks them, is it true what they say about you, that you don't serve my gods, and you don't worship the golden image. So he says, I'm going to give you another chance. The next time we play the trumpets, you got to bow down. If not, you're going to be cast into the fiery furnace. And no one's going to be able to save you from that. At which point they answered, and they said, Nebuchadnezzar, our God, if he's able to deliver us, will deliver us. And if not, that's the way it's going to have to be, but we're not going to bow down. When Nebuchadnezzar hears this kind of chutzpah coming from them, he totally loses his, you know, uh, temper. It says over there, he was filled with fury and the form of his visage was changed. And he got so angry that he commanded that they should heat up the furnace seven times what it's normally heated for, you know, for execution. In other words, if it's normally 200, 300 degrees, it has to be 2,000 degrees, which was a very big mistake as we shall see in a second. They make the trumpets, they refuse to bow down, they tie up Hanani Mishol Vazaria, and they throw them into the furnace. What happens, of course, is that because the furnace is so hot, the Gemara says, when they opened it up, a blast comes out and kills the executioners, and they threw Hanani Mishol Vazaria, they fell into the furnace. At which point, he takes a look around, and he looks through the furnace, and he sees three guys are walking around, and he sees four of them. He sees an angel walking with them. He goes over and he says, Hananiah, Mishol, Vazariah, well, can you come out of the fiery furnace? I'd like to speak to you. When they hear that, they come out. By the way, there's a lesson to be learned from this. Rashi says that they didn't go out until they got permission from Nebuchadnezzar. It teaches you that even Nebuchadnezzar, who's your executioner, until he tells them, come out, okay, now they're going to come out. 
another lesson that other people say from this is that they were they're afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. That although they weren't afraid of the fire, but when it comes to human beings, human beings are capable of harming individuals, even if otherwise they would not be high of Misa, which is a very interesting concept. But in any case, they come out, they were smelling, you didn't even smell smoke from them. I mean, anybody that stands near a fire, you start smelling of it. Their hair wasn't singed, their clothes were good. At that point, Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face and he says, there is no God like the God of these people. And he starts singing praises to God, and that's where you know the rest of the story about the Mawa coming in and all that. Okay. End of the story. A remarkable story. This is the story of Hananiah, Mishael, of Azariah, how they were saved from the fiery furnace. The Gemara says the following. The Gemara, first of all, says when this happened, the Goyim looked around and they saw, you know, you're talking about that they heated the fiery furnace seven times the normally normal amount. The executioners got killed. The Gomorrah recounts how the furnace melted. So everybody was able to see what's going on inside because the heat was so powerful that everybody was like an explosion. And they saw them walking around in the midst of this explosion. They come out in front of everybody and everybody sees what's going on here. Everybody bows down. They say the Jewish God reigns supreme. So everybody started going over to all the Jews that bowed down because obviously Hanani and Mishael Bazar were the exception, not the rule. And they said, you have God like this and... And, and, you, and, you, and you bow down to an idol? How can you do that? And they started hitting the Jews. They said, what kind of people are you? You have such a great and powerful God. How could you serve such an idol? The Gomorrah then asks, what happened to Hanani and Bishobazai? Because right after this story, we don't hear from them anymore. So there's a machlokes in the Gomorrah. So one of the mandomim in the Gomorrah in Sanhedrin says, they drowned in spit. They drowned in spit? What does that mean? So obviously it doesn't mean literally. What it means is, what, uh, what Rashi explains is that when the Goyim were embarrassing the Jews so much over Hanani Mishol Bazaya's successful encounter with the flames, in order to spare the Jewish people embarrassment, Hanani Mishol Bazaya died. Here what's going on over here. We're talking about Hanani Mishol Bazaya, who made, through Kiddush Hashem, who made this tremendous thing. They come out of the fire. And the, in order to spare the Jews that were worshipping idols, who, okay, they worshipped the idols, they bowed down unintentionally by force, but nevertheless, to spare these Jews' embarrassment, Hanani Mishol Bazaya died, so that no longer were people able to say that, hmm, you know what, maybe it had an after effect, whatever it is. At that point already, the Jews were no longer spit upon by the Goyim. So it doesn't mean they were drowned in spit themselves, it means they died as a result of the embarrassment and the spit that the Goyim were were doing at the at the other Jews. Again, we see another instance of this idea that in order to spare people embarrassment, to what great extent a person has to go, that God allowed three tzaddikim to die, whether I in horror, however the case can be understood, in order to spare further embarrassment for the rest of the Jewish people. With this, I'd like to now just end off with the following: a couple of things that are, that that we could perhaps take lessons for ourselves one thing that we could learn that we could try to improve ourselves let's take a look at at, at a couple of let's take a look at a Mishnah and you're going to wonder why I'm mentioning this Mishnah but you'll see shortly the Ramam, it's a Mishnah in Sanhedrin a person that serves idols so that's considered of course the cardinal offense in Judaism so the Mishnah says 
Echod ha'oved, whether you serve it, you worship it. Echod ha'zoveach, or you sacrifice to it. Echod ha'nekater, or you bring incense, or you bring yain nesach, or you bow down, or you accept it as your god. All of these things, you are considered liable to the death penalty by stoning. Avol ha'megafev, let's say a person doesn't bow down to the idol, but he goes over to the idol and he starts kissing it. V'hamenashek, he hugs it, he kisses it, v'hamechabid, or he washes it, and like he starts kissing the idol and hugging it dearly. It's it's obviously a very terror. It's a terrible thing to do, right? Hamarchitz, you know, you wash it and you clean it and all these things. You're not liable to the death penalty, but over below you're violating a negative command. A lot. It's like eating treif, but since we're dealing with avodazar, it's something that's a lot worse, right? Because in other words, you're not you're not violating the cardinal offense of idol worship. But what you're in effect doing is, by kissing an idol, you're paying it a kind of a respect which is forbidden in the Torah. So it's considered a laugh, it's a loss, it's a negative command, and it's a very uh, repulsive thing to do. Likewise, hanoder bishmo, v'hamakayim bishmo, over below says, if a person swears using the God's name, he likewise violates the same thing. Now I have heard many Jews, even religious Jews, and I'll be very explicit, for Christ's sake, why don't you do this? You're violating a law. It's like going over to an idol, hugging it and kissing it. You're violating a law. Now, people obviously do it in anger, or they're doing it when they want to say something. The Goyim say it. But how could a Jewish person use these kind of expressions? Because what are you saying? You're saying, for the sake of Jesus, you should do this and this and the following. How can you say such a thing? That's called, no der bishmo v'hamekayim bishmo. You're violating a law in the Torah. You know, I was learning this Mishnah with you, and you're wondering, what does this Mishnah have to do with any of us? But the fact is, when a person does this, is the, you're not, it's not a cardinal offense. You don't get killed for it, death by stoning. But it's the same thing as going over to the cross in church and kissing it and hugging it. Could you imagine a Jewish person doing that? In the eyes of the Torah, a person that says, for Christ's sake, do the following, is violating the same affair. It's just something that... that, that that should not be heard on the lips of a Jew. That's one thing I'd like to just bring out. Again, to be careful in speech. Another thing that I'd like to bring out that a person should be careful with. If a person curses a dayan, over below, say you are violating a law that says, a judge. Likewise, if you curse a prince or a king, or a rabbi, whatever it is, all these things you violate another law. Then the Rabbim says, below dying v'nasi bilvad. Not only if you curse a prince or a king or a dying or a judge, anybody that curses another Jewish person, loke gets malchus. Malchus is you get lashes. That means you violated the negative command. You get malchus. Where do we know that from? Because it says in the pasuk, lo sekarul cheresh. Don't curse a deaf person. What does it mean, deaf person? The Torah means even a deaf person. In other words, don't even curse a person that can't understand or hear what you're saying. Like when you curse in a foreign language. You know, you could curse a, a person that doesn't understand what you're saying. You're doing it in a foreign language. They don't feel it. The Torah says you're not allowed to even do that. Certainly, you're not allowed to curse a person that understands and feels embarrassment from what you're saying. So therefore, you're not allowed to, and you're not even curse yourself. Then the realm says the following. However, one stipulation. This halacha only applies if you curse using God's name. 
Ain't no loki, you don't get Malchus, unless you use one of God's names, such as Ko, Elohim, Shaka, etc. Or, says the Rambam, the Kinuim Min Hakinuim, one of God's um, nicknames, so to speak, like Chanun, etc., etc. Then he says like this, not only do you violate this law when you use one of these names, but if you use one of the, the expressions that the Goyim use for God, that's also considered a kinui, and you get malchus because that has the same, you know, legal um, uh, legal definition as a kinui. In other words, if a person says to someone, "Damn you," that's a curse. You don't get malchus for it. But if a person says, "God damn you," then you are violating a law in the Torah that you get malchus for. And this is something which is very common that people do. But a person that uses God's name is violating. It's like eating treif. Is the equivalent of eating trade. You get Malchus for it. If a person uses God's name and he says, and he says it even about himself, if you say, God damn me, same thing. If he's, I don't know. Good question. No, you, you, well, you're violating something else. You're violating then the the, the usage of God's name in, in a, right, Lashav. But, but I'm talking right now about the love of cursing another individual. When a person says this to somebody else, he is violating a love in the Torah, which is the equivalent of eating trade wearing shatnas or any of these things. And this is something which is very easy. Um, if a person drives a car in Rosh Hashanah, okay? If you drive a car in Rosh Hashanah, all you, it's only a lav. There's no, it's, it's not more than a lav. It's only a negative command. It's the equivalent of when a person does this kind of thing. It's the same, same kind of a level. This, these are things that a person can make an effort to correct. I mean, I'm not... Again, I didn't want to use things that are too difficult, but these are small things that a person could take upon himself to watch his speech. And in general, you have to watch your speech. You have to watch your speech about Lush and horror and about, and which is really the theme of what we're talking about. You have to, when you when you deal with someone else, when you criticize someone, you have to be very careful how you do it. But again, I'm not being practical then. That's something you have to have a general attitude. But there are certain things that we could pick up in terms of you know, being careful in speech that, that have major, major significance in Jewish law. So, you know, even more so, the mission in Sanhedrin says that we, you know, we know that if a person curses his parents, he's liable to the death penalty. So it's the same law. You have to use one of God's names. So according to Reb Meir in the Mishnah, if a person uses a kinui, one of God's so-called nicknames, to curse a parent, you are liable to the death penalty by stoning. In other words, if a person would say, "God damn you," to your father, according to Reb Meir, it's the equivalent, the exact equivalent of Chil Shabbos. Worse than eating on Yom Kippur is the equivalent of Chil Shabbos. So, I mean, just little slips of the tongue can have major, major significance. And we have to learn a lesson from this to watch our speech and, in general, what kind of an attitude to have. But I think these are two points that are pretty easy for a person to be careful about, although it seems to be common practice that people are, you know, just lax in these. Okay. Sure.